Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee and I'm currently a visiting postdoctoral scholar in women's gender and sexuality studies at the University of Houston. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Naisargi Dave about their latest book titled Indifference on the Praxis of Interspecies Being, published by Duke University Press in 2023. Dr. Dave is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto, and their research concerns are including emergent forms of intra and interspecies ethics, politics, and relationality in contemporary India. Across projects, Dr. Dave is interested in practices of ethnographic expression and in the work of the narrative. Their first book, Queer Activism in India, a story in the anthropology of ethics, published by Duke University Press in 2012, examines the relationship between queer desires and queer political formations. It was awarded the 2013 Ruth Benedict Prize by the Association for Queer Anthropology. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Dave. Thank you, Shraddha. Thank you for reading the book and for inviting me on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk with you today. I think the feeling is very much mutual. I've been, as you know, following your work for more than a decade now, um, which makes me feel a bit old. But anyway, I'd like to begin (laughs) asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? So in other words, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself? Well, I'd say that um, serendipitous encounters constitute uh, a central theme of that journey. And I've been thinking a little bit lately, you know, just sort of conceptualizing uh, the arc of, of the two books um, and realizing how closely connected serendipity is with indifference, actually. And, and serendipitous encounters were important uh, in different ways in the genesis of both of the books, but also 
in my becoming an anthropologist at all. Um, so I was the child of middle-class immigrant parents who, uh, you know, wanted nothing more than for me to become a med- medical doctor. And, um, you know, for most of my young life, I, I had a feeling that my future was a bit of a foregone conclusion just because my parents' wishes were so strong and um, I didn't have uh, a particularly strong alternative in mind. And so I took um, kind of aggressive disinterest in my education and um, went to the University of Georgia with a bunch of my high school friends. Um, and there, you know, fortunately, as part of my uh, my pre-med program, we had to take an elective. And so for all of the arbitrary reasons that a disinterested college student selects a course, I wound up in a feminist anthropology class. And, um, you know, there were two things about that that, that were, were just so pivotal. One, it was one of these classes that was mixed between undergrads and graduate students. So just being able to observe these graduate students for the first time gave me a very clear sense of who and what I wanted to be. I could very much see myself in them um, and wanted that for myself. But the other thing that was so important was, uh, and this was a class taught by uh, Carla Roncoli, who was an adjunct professor at the University of Georgia at the time. And, you know, in this class, I encountered uh, Anna Singh and Ruth Behar and Zora Neale Hurston and Kamla Visvesvaran and, um, you know, not to be cliche about it, but there was really just, there was no turning back from these encounters. And I was so taken with um, with the capaciousness of anthropology, um, how it seemed that, you know, seemingly anything could be an object of anthropological inquiry. Um, I was so taken with how organically one could meld one's one's politics, one's thinking, one's artistry. And anthropology struck me as a discipline that was also a vocation. And I found that romantic and seductive and, and beautiful and interesting. So I went home the next weekend and broke my parents' hearts and went and, you know, became an anthropologist. Um, and, but in terms of your question about the need to write the book, um, I was compelled by questions that I had been asking, I, I think really for most of my life, um, you know, again, as the, the child of immigrant parents who had, who had very vigorous attachments to, to culture, caste, religion, heteropatriarchy, um, I had this, you know, this frustration and disappointment and a sense of the vacuity of culturalist frameworks for actually existing life. Um, My first book, too, I think, came out of that set of conditions. And with this book, with Indifference, I was driven to think about human-animal relations in India, very much in the context of Hindutva, um, and also more mundanely or more transhistorically, perhaps, to think about interspecies relationality outside of its recruitment for political economic purposes, for religion, for moral purposes. 
so to understand interspecies life in its in its materiality and singularity. Um, so although you know perhaps we we have different frameworks or different approach points, um, this broadly is something that I share with the wonderful work of a number of South Asians working in animal studies. Uh, for example, the wonderful work of say uh, Radhika Govindarajan. Thank you for sharing that, and I think what you what you say about. I think in your words, immigration as a vigorous attachment, I can see now that your book can be read with a different lens, which is, um, you know, indifference as a counter to that kind of vigorous attachment. But we'll, we'll come to that shortly. And I suppose my next question is then, what would you say are the central arguments in the book and how are the chapters organized? I'd say the book is about... Um world making or interspecies world making through the care work of letting be and i think the central preoccupation or or interest or fascination of the book is in that paradox of care work being a kind of letting letting be letting the other be the central argument of the book is that care is born Care is born of indifference. It's born out of the respect and regard for the thatness of the other, um, or in not desiring to do anything with, for, or through the other. And I think there are three ways in which this ethos manifests in the book. One is as a, a kind of a lifelong project, a, a discipline, something that people actively cultivate as a way of being in the world, even as a way of girding themselves from the world or through the world. Um, and this, I think, is an ethos that drives uh, the chapter on touch towards the end of the book. But another way in which indifference manifests itself, there's um there's a, there's a story I tell in the introduction um, in a section called For Janine, and this was another very tr- life-transformative moment that happened while I was uh, an undergrad at the University of Georgia. And I talk about how, um, you know, one of the ways in which I, I resisted or refused or practiced a refusal against the strictures of my parents' home and their attachment to vegetarianism um, you know, was, um, you know, was eating meat and, and, you know, becoming a lesbian and all of those other things. Um, and I tell this story about, um, you know, one day I was at my home, uh, my rented home, and I looked out the window and there was just this beautiful androgyne uh, mowing the front grass and she had a carabiner of keys and a tank top and 501s and, and, uh, you know, I was just like, who is that? And uh, my roommate and her friend, they said, oh, you know, that's that's Janine. And then Casey said, you know, she's a vegan. And uh, that very night, I, you know, as I say in the in the section, I ordered uh, dry toast and black coffee. And I've been a vegan ever since then. And it's been like 25 years. So I've been thinking, too, about how, par- again, paradoxically, that falling in love is 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 a 
is, is a wonderful example of indifference. Um, when we're so moved by someone, by something or some idea that we become completely indifferent to the answer to the question, now what will become of me, right? And and in those moments of indifference, there's a kind of, there's an abundance and there's an openness and an intensification of the ability to affect and be affected. And then I think there's a third way in which indifference manifests in the book, and it's a more gentle way, and I think a more mundane and imminent way. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm, I'll, I'll read the, the poem. It's a short poem from Audre Lorde um, that I quote in the introduction. It's a, it's a poem that she titles for Judith. Hanging out means being together upon the earth, boulders, crepe myrtle trees, fox and deer at the watering hole, not quite together, but learning each other's ways. And I think about this poem by Lord as, as, a, as, a beautiful, as a beautiful call for indifference, as a beautiful description of it towards a being together, not together, as a relation of unfolding intimacy. Thank you. I think again the the poem the poem does important work in the book, and I think it does important work in your argument as well. Um, and of course, I have many questions, but I think one of the things I can't help think about from what you're saying right now is if you are looking at indifference through all of these different registers of relationality, essentially. Um, whether it's an intensified relation or a mundane, imminent one. I wonder what was it that led you towards the question of philosophical ethics um, as opposed to, say, uh, in my mind, what would be a question of psychoanalysis, really? Um, but, of course, my bias is showing, so you're. please feel free to tell me that. <laughs> It's a good question. Um, I haven't, yeah, I'm not sure I've thought about that very much. Um, I suppose it's one of these questions, and this too is one of those generative uh, paradoxes that both drives the book and that we we see in different ways through the book, right? Which is um, the our, 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 in some ways, our constant struggle between um, our our attachments and our affections, um, as well as a kind of uh, an openness or an indifference. And I think for me, there was just a, a certain kind of draw more to uh, the philosophical and the ethnographic. Um, and I wonder if it's a kind of um, a kind of impersonal ethos, if that makes sense. And it's reminding me, actually, I have a footnote to Lauren Berlant, I think the very first footnote of the book, um, where I refer to her being on the side of what they'd called beloved thatness, uh, and which Berlant um, argues for what they call an impersonal world. And of course, Berlant had, you know, 
extraordinary things to say about the nexus of psychoanalysis and critical theory. And, and I'm very much drawn to that literature too. But I wonder if one way into your question is just that um, there's a kind of uh, uh, a draw towards the impersonal perhaps, uh, that leads me to uh, what more of what you're describing as the, the sort of the ethnographic philosophical as opposed to the psychoanalytic perspective. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And again, um, it's also that for those of us who've read the book, and hopefully for those who will read the book, um, actually, like the questions of philosophy, ethics, and immanence make make a lot of sense in in terms of what they're doing in the work so um i suppose i was just curious as to why you you almost go to psychoanalysis but then don't but uh, that's just a you know that's like an i like an like an extra to the to the book uh, but anyway i will ask you my next question which is Again, as you know, as you say, you trace the concept and praxis of indifference across numerous sites and senses, across different landscapes and soundscapes. And I think your ethnography is very intentional in doing that. And your ethnography includes work with animal rights activists, interviews with people involved in animal husbandry, discussions on consent and cruelty, meditations on touch, temporality, silence, and so much more. So, um, was it a conscious decision to present us with the work of indifference across such a vast horizon? And if so, what is it that we learn about indifference from the multiplicity of how and where you invoke it, right? So I suppose if I could ask this question simply, I'm asking how indifference is attuned to singularity and multiplicity at the same time. Mm, wow, that's a it's a wonderful question, um, and what it makes me think is that, you know, perhaps I would suggest, in light of hearing you ask that question, um, that vastness is a quality of indifference, and indifference is a quality of vastness, and I think what I mean by that is that when we are indifferent to the demands of rote or normative contextualization practices, uh, when we are indifferent to our attachments to concepts and the sense of what constitutes the proper and appropriate fields for those concepts, um, when we are indifferent in those ways, we are sort of thrown into vastness, and I think that's what's that helps us understand too what's so what's comfortable about uh, certain practices of contextualization and attachments to concepts is that they are they're grounding, um, and um, but at the same time they can be over determining 
and limiting. Um, so I think you're, I'm very intrigued by your observation that there's a kind of, uh, there's a vastness in, in the landscape of the book and how that might relate to indifference itself. Um, you know, all that said, um, I do, there is still something that I find very comfortably uh, predictable and logical about the, the, the fields through which this book moves, you know, terrains that I think um, we would certainly associate with interspecies uh, existence, right? Animal shelters, the, you know, biographies of odious and luminous people and abattoirs and city streets and animal sterilization clinics and, and poultry farms. So, um, yeah, perhaps, you know, as you said, there is a vastness to the landscape, um, but uh, there's also something to me, uh, you know, very also grounded and, uh, and comfortably predictable in some, in some ways about, uh, about that vastness. Thank you for sharing. And I think, um, I think what I read from the book was that you were also very deliberate about situating the senses for us as a reader. And I think you were also very deliberate about, or at least you were very aware of your own senses when you were doing this kind of ethnography. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but that is the sense that I got from the book. And I think that was part of why I asked this question, which is that, you know, there is, of course, like a, a multiplicity of sites and there is a vast landscape, but I think you're also very intentional about, um, I think, foregrounding the sense. And like you do write about touch quite directly, but then you write about smell, you write about sight, you write about, I think you write about that kind of ethnography in a very, and it gives gives your ethnography a very, um, like a, the word is not primal, but it's like, it it gives it a very oh, yes it it gives it a very animal like um, I think hue or color. So could you say something more about that and or or share more about what what could have led to this being a central I I don't I don't know like a theme but. Not quite. Yeah, no, I, um, I I love that question. And I think, you know, early uh, drafts of the book and early stabs at titles very much, you know, involved things. I think that what I was calling the book uh, for many years uh, was The Social Skin um, and the subtitle involving the sens- interspecies sensorium. So I think I, I've always been... Um, these questions of, of skin and materiality and the sensorium and of touch um, and, and smell and um, uh, what I've been thinking along with uh, Abu Farman and a few others, sort of the, the synesthetics of the ethnographic sensorium um, uh, has been at the forefront from early on. But I like what you're saying too about this. Um, I appreciate hearing that there's, you know, what you're 
toying with the idea of like sort of a kind of a primal quality or in the chapter on touch, drawing on the work of Eric Santner and others, um, I describe it as a kind of as a creatureliness, actually. And, and uh, it's how being disinterested allows for an expansion of the sensorium that I describe as creaturely as opposed to anthropocentric and invested in all of the all-too-human politics of the sensorium. Thank you. I think, yes, very much so. And I think it does give the book a very unique and like a very different kind of character. And, And I think Again, like you're suggesting, it says something about how you're thinking with and thinking about indifference in that moment. Um, and of course, like the question of ethnography or or it, like, let's just call it a primal ethnography. It brings me to another question about ethnography, which is, um, I think, about what you say your favorite ethnographic vignette is. Um, which is of Deepesh, um, the welfare for stray dogs field worker who took great care to remove maggots from an old dog only to dismissively say she's old when she was almost hit by a car a few minutes later. And building on this, you argue against a kind of contradiction. You argue for imminence and you ask us to rethink our imagination of ethics in the process. So I'm wondering if you could say more about that. But also, actually, it's, you know, could you say more about your own horror of in that moment, right? Because you write that you shrieked and, you know, you didn't quite know what to do. So, um, yes. Uh, right. No, thank you for, for asking that. Um, so, yeah, the scene, and again, it is, it is one that I have embraced uh, speaking about and, and writing and thinking through over the years many times. Um, you know, I think as a kind of ethnographic ethos of not sort of having to let things go, but allowing things to be ones that we, that we worry over and think with and think through for, for decades and um, can always interpret and reinterpret in new ways. And uh, right, so in this story, I was, I was, in, I was walking with the Beish and um, normally his route is based on calls that he receives from the Welfare for Stray Dogs call center. But this time he just spied a dog underneath a, a motor scooter and he, we were chatting and he stopped and he pulled the dog out and, um, you know, and I didn't understand what was wrong with the dog. The dog looked like it had uh, lived very rough life, certainly. Um, but Depeche uh, put a newspaper under her butt, lifted her legs, uh, dropped some medicine into her anus, and basically tweezed maggots out of her butt. Um, and um, so he got up to throw away the wadded newspaper full of the corpses of dead maggots. And uh, I watched as the dog walked into the street and uh, took a crap and was almost hit by, by a car. And, you know, as you said, I screamed. And the page, however, after this, you know, 20 minute ordeal, uh, you know, under, in, in the sun, he didn't know this dog um, and pulling maggots one by one out of her body. Um, he, there was something so interesting to me about the fact that there was 
there was an apparent contradiction, I think, that I experienced afterwards, right, which was between the labor of his care, the effort of his labor, and what appeared to be an indifference to the dog's life as such or her survival um, or it needing to prove anything about his work, that he worked regardless of the consequences. And that to me, it exemplified in that moment something something beautiful and revelatory uh, and what I came to understand as uh, as an imminent ethic, right? That one that that responds to what is before us without necessary regard to to what that means for us after the fact. And I think maybe we can even link the Janine story to that or all of the other examples in the book. Um, and in the chapter on contradiction and context, which I open with that particular scene, um, I talk about how um, I discussed that moment, that scene so often afterwards. And one of the things that I found really fascinating, of course, I recognized an apparent contradiction, but there was also the way in which people would seek an explanation for for what he did and didn't do in that moment. And I started thinking about the role that contradiction thinking or the tyranny of consistency plays in the relationship between normativity and the otherwise, in how contradiction thinking, one, it says much more about our language ideology. So for example, one of the responses would be, you know, this is a this is a man who who saves dogs but kills maggots, right? There's something inherently contradictory as opposed to imminently ethical about his actions. So I've been thinking through the question of contradiction and and the, the tyranny of consistency and one, how it says more about language ideology, but two, how a normative man when acting normatively is rarely called upon to count, to account for his ethical contradictions and how normativity is actually that which is allowed to be and remain in self-contradiction without existential consequence. So um, in that kind of that elaboration of the scene and the ways in which I interpret it and my interlocutors would interpret it. And of course, I get into a little bit of how the page in very surprising ways that I forgot in the moment um, that I would that I forgot after the fact, but then saw when I went back to look at my field notes um, through that interpretation. Um, what I'm coming to is um, an argument that the main function of contradiction thinking is to exhaust the ethically otherwise by restoring otherwise gestures to existing familiar lines of force. Very much so. And I think when I was reading that, it resonated, I think, even beyond that ethnographic moment, because I think so many of us who've been involved in any kind of social justice, even if it's for like a very short period, have encountered similar arguments of, you know, designed to exhaust us, which are around like, you know, you do this, but why don't you do this other thing? And then this other. And I think it is very much, it is very much an allegation that comes to you when you move against normativity, like you say, um, it is very much something that happens, an argument that is put across when, you um, you know designed to exhaust you so that you are unable to do some kind of work um, and of course now because I'm 
um, also in the process of teaching undergraduate students, I'm also realizing this is something that increasingly happens, say, on social media, where this kind of contradiction is often highlighted um, to kind of, I don't know, as if neutralize the stakes of the debate, right? And I, I think for me, this moment in particular had like so many resonances, um, even like even beyond, I think, what you were, you were trying to say in the book. But I think that also takes me to, again, it brings me back to then the uses of indifference or the, the, the ways in which indifference can then be invoked across different, uh, you know, like, I, like areas, but also different genres, different moments. Um, and I think, let me ask you the question of indifference in ethnography or anthropology next, just because we are, we are on that topic, right? So you, you write that indifference also offers a different way to do anthropology. And I think very particularly you talk about your own opposition to the, to the, you know, I suppose to to I suppose like drawing a kind of consistency in anthropological writing and you know you you define indifference as an ethic of not staring of not consuming of not making meaning at least not hastily and all of these practices are in many ways at the heart of anthropological inquiry as well so what are some practices of indifference in the field that an interested ethnographer can build upon I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off that's great thank you i mean this this is a tough one right because uh if one is indifferent one should not be prescriptive <laughs> um but uh, but it's a very fair it's a very fair question that i i'm sure there are things that look like prescriptions all through the book um but i will say in response to your question that um you know sometimes we want to be looked at closely and sometimes we want to be consumed and sometimes we want to be understood or to be the means for the generation of some kind of otherwise meaning that is uh that is that is beyond us um so while there is this this ethos that runs through the book or at least a provocation let's say of the ethic of not staring not consuming not grasping um, the other side of that is the kind of awareness that indifference provides 
to not knowing in advance what exactly is being asked of us, right? And again, sometimes it is wanting to be consumed and it is wanting to be understood. It is wanting to be looked at closely. It is even wanting to be analyzed. Um, so, you know, maybe in response to this, I will uh, shirk responsibility. I'll, I'll paraphrase something that Lisa Stevenson uh, said in in, uh, in response to the the book, which was um, to practice. I think what it means to see how being indifferent to the call that is being made to us allows us to differently answer that call. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think uh, I think that was a fair response also because, again, if indifference calls upon us to also, like, as you say, like indifference calls upon us to, to respond to the other without, I suppose, without fully understanding or fully um like fully wanting to like to consume the other then there there really can't be a kind of prescription especially if the other demands something else of us like like you say wanting to be consumed or wanting to be analyzed um but i think i'll move to to uh, to the next question which is around an ethic of non-relation then, right? So I think you, you're you writing against, especially in the book, you're writing against the myth of the animal that cannot speak. So you invoke Derrida, you invoke Haraway, and you speak that it, you know, you demonstrate that it can speak, but it may well choose not to. And I think an interesting, a very interesting counter or like a very interesting uh, moment when the animal, I think, speaks quite persistently or quite 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 intentionally is when you write about the time of the chicken but anyway you 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 stand with the politics where the subaltern has a right to opacity right and across the book you take care to outline that non-relation or indifference is not the same as an abnegation of responsibility as a stance where one decides that one must do nothing to intervene in the suffering or domination of others um so I'm asking you to elaborate on this for us a little bit here, which is that, you know, while on the one hand, indifference is an ethic of non-relation, what does the contour of that non-relation look like? Because very often it can be seen as an abnegation of responsibility. Ah, uh, well, first of all, this wasn't the main point of your question, but I am super interested and curious in, in hearing more about how you saw um, the 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 most forceful acts of speaking in the chapter in the final chapter on the time of the chicken. Uh, that's very interesting to me. Um, but more directly, in response to your question, um, one premise of this book, uh, and you're right to pick up on exactly this uh, this kind of this, this struggle or generative paradox. Um, one premise of the book, and it's something I share with, uh, like Eva Giraud's, for example, what comes after entanglement, or Candea's idea of interpatiency, is that recognizing the other's desire for, and to use 
perhaps an unlovely word, right to non-relation, um, is actually the condition for meaningful response and responsibility in Haraway's sense of the word. Um, that when we act from, when we tend to act from a desire for difference as opposed to from indifference, it's often, not always, but often from some prior sense of what is being asked of us and what the consequences, moral, social, intimate, psychic, of those actions will be. And my suggestion here is that acting from a place of indifference towards the other, that is being in a shared condition of imminently unfolding difference is what enables otherwise and often surprising gestures of co-belonging. And I think, thank you. And I think this, it's not a dialectic quite, but it's like, I think it's this, also, again, please feel free to correct me. But when I was reading, I thought there was also you wanting to address this nervousness of indifference being read as an abnegation of responsibility, right? And particularly because, you know, I think you were very mindful of working on the question of animal ethics and interspecies relation in the like in a time of like the ascendancy of Hindutva. So, so I think, yes. So, so for you also, there was, I think the insistence on clarifying that indifference is not an abnegation of responsibility. Indifference is not a, a way to, you know, I, I suppose like produce difference. Right. Yes. Yes. I I agree with that. And you're right. I think there was uh, an especial care, perhaps, um, to to emphasize that point that indifference is not, or I don't mean it as such. And you know, and I play around in the book with you know, I refer to people as indifferent in the normative or or more customary understanding of the word, right? Which is to say, apathetic, careless. Uh, sort of deliberately ignorant um, about uh, about conditions in the world or other people's needs or desires. Um, and um, so, so, yeah, I think I was, there was a little bit of, of a special caretaking to stress how indifference in the way that I'm using it in this book or, or one of the ways in which I'm trying to expand uh, a, a one approach for thinking about the concept um, is not an abnegation of responsibility or for care. Um, and at the same time, I think just from a purely ethnographic perspective, what I was observing is people's passion and, and love and attention. And attention is very interesting to me. Um, really stemmed from a kind of stemmed from that that kind of indifference. Thank you. Yes, and I think again, I wonder if it felt like you were treading a kind of tightrope trying to make this argument, you know, in 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 the context that India currently is in. Um, 
Yes, yes. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a tightrope, but it's a, it's a responsibility, right? Um, and it's one that, um, you know, that I want to take extremely seriously. And, you know, and going back to my answer to, I think, your, your very first question, um, you know, the, the genesis of this book, you know, stemmed from the, the sense of the, the vacuity of soul and spirit and, and all of that, the attachment to casteist purity politics produces and what a disservice it, it does to all of the sort of material ways in which humans and animals uh, encounter each other in India. So it's about, you know, so I, I, I want to take that context very seriously. And, you know, in the first two chapters of the book are very much devoted to thinking about how, um, you know, a particular strand of animal activism, animal rights, or whatever one wants to call it in India, you know, very much and very clearly from a historical perspective, saw its genesis in Indo-European fascism and the foment of World War II. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it is, it's, um, it's a responsibility uh, that, I, that I take very seriously in the book. Absolutely so. And I think you also, again, maybe not, not in so many words, but I think you also then take a, take a stand that actually Hindutva or like other forms of fascism are a dedication to difference actually and not, not at yes, all. Right. Not at all indifference. That's absolutely um, right. Yeah. Um, and I think now I'm going to ask you a question that I have one asked you before, but also um, that that I think again are just gen- like purely self interest, right? You you mentioned that you're one. You mentioned that you're choosing to avoid the word activist for most, if not all, of your ethnographic interlocutors in this book, and you know I I wonder. I wonder why you do that. Um, and also, I think this relates for me to the question of how indifference is connected to the arguments you made about queer activism's ethics in your previous book. So there is, there is of course, like an evolution of how you think about ethics across both books. But while in the first one, you center and foreground activism, in this one, you are decidedly saying that's not a word you're using. Mm, great question, Shraddha. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll start with your with the second part of the question about about the first book about queer activism in India. So, so in that book, you're right. It's you know activism is in the rather unimaginative title of the book, and um, you know, and, and in that book, I argue that queer activism uh, is is it, it entails three interrelated practices. One is the critique or problemization of the social. Two is invented alternatives born of that critique and problemization. And three is the uh, the relational, the creative relational practice of those invented alternatives to the problematized social. Um, and, you know, but again, kind of counterintuitively, 
I couldn't have, I only saw this, right? I only saw this kind of the passionate investment in the world through a kind of the indifference of that Derridean hospitality, right? That I talk, the radical hospitality that I talk about in the introduction, right? The idea of the saying yes to who and what turns up. Um, this world that I was inhabiting of queer, predominantly lesbian, queer activists in Delhi in the late 1990s and early aughts, or throughout the aughts, um, was a world that was only made possible because there was a radical hospitality of anyone who walks in, the, every, anyone who comes knocking on the door is welcome, right? Um, all you had to be was queer. And it didn't matter what else brought you there. It didn't matter what else your other commitments were. Um, there was just this capaciousness and a, a true indifference to who and what turns up, right? Um, that then gave me a kind of... Um, access or um, helped me see uh, it was indifference that gave rise to the passionate attachments that I was so interested in um, in that book. Um, in indifference, uh, in my second book, the reason I shy away from it is um, is that it both it's it's overdetermining. It both says too much and by saying too much, it therefore says too little. And it gives us the impression of sort of knowing what this actor is, right? And there are some, many of the people that I follow in the book are, you know, they very much self-identify as activists and they are professionally dedicated to a life of, in their eyes, reducing suffering, um, creating the conditions for justice in a, in a better world and, and all of those things. Um, but most of the people, um, you know, there's a, and so with the activist and, uh, you know, like one example, I think, uh, sort of an, an example in, in the Indian context of someone that we would associate with like an animal right activist has that kind of that propulsive, even ruthless go, go, go of like a, of a, like a Manika Gandhi, for example. Um, but most of the people that I was working with um, and most of the people that we encounter over the course of the book, you know, they were, they were just living, right? Living imminently, um, living passionately, but living imminently without certainty or without a plan regarding the effects of their actions. And so in contrast to this propulsive go, 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 um, most of the people I spent time with and admire very deeply um, in the book have something else. And um, it's something that I talk about in the touch chapter, which is more like it's a resignation or uh, with thanks to uh, Vijayanka Nair, who uh, read the chapter and used this beautiful phrase uh, of irrepressible resignation. Um, and I think that's a kind of, um, it's a sensibility that I find uh, very interesting and that to me isn't quite captured um, in, in the figure of the activist. Um, there's a there's a section in the middle of the book in the interlude um, 
that where I don't talk, I don't use the word activist specifically, and I don't talk about this very specifically, um, but it, it comes around the center of the book, and I mean for it to be, um, I, I, I mean for it to be saying a lot. And if you don't mind, I can, uh, I'll read those two paragraphs. Please go ahead. Okay. We walked for 40 minutes toward the tip of the town, Electric House in Colaba. The Pesh had been called to the colonial-style bungalow of a lawyer who was a frequent caller to WSD. The lawyer was home for lunch and walked us to the footpath where the dog he was concerned about lives. He had been injured in a fight with cuts on his face and a large wound at the base of his ear. He looked terribly sad. The Pesh treated the animal while the lawyer hovered nervously. After we said goodbye, the Pesh told me that the man isn't married and has no children because his life revolves around animals. Please, I thought, that man is so gay. I kept this to myself, not knowing how the Pesh felt about such matters and not having brought up how gay I am either. I was rarely out to animal, to animalists, except, of course, to all the queers among them. I was not sure what to make of my silence, though I suspect it was rooted in an understanding that most animal activists harbor a haughty indifference toward every social issue that does not directly involve the abuse of animals. I did not necessarily feel this way about the peche. I think I simply respected his monastic aloofness, his unhaughty indifference towards things that did not concern him. In any case, whether or not the barrister was so gay, it was clear that he was lonely, and loneliness was what drove this world I knew most intimately of interspecies care. Loneliness and emptiness and grief, far more and more often than dogma. Men whose wives had died, women whose husbands had died, queer couples who had one or each been mistreated, queenie of closeted old single men, dykes whose praxis was forged as a rejection of the violent worlds of man and men people alone, affect aliens from faraway galaxies. These people are not the ones who suck up all of the air, but they do, like Depeche, walk the earth with attention, their errant paths carving grooves of grace. Thank you for that. I think you have read out what to me was you know in in many ways like the most the most haunting part of of your book but we can have that discussion later but it's it's also relating to a question that i had for you which is that like you write here you you know you write that during your field work you came out to only those who were also queer and I wondered if you make similar decisions with respect to revealing that you were vegan. And could you share an instance or two where the knowledge of your veganism became the grounds for your interlocutors to reveal something about themselves that they might not have otherwise? Or conversely, did you observe that any of your interlocutors in the field could be indifferent to you being vegan? It's a great question. Um, the only people who were indifferent to my being vegan were other vegans. And I think that says a lot, actually, in response to your question. But otherwise, nobody was indifferent to it. Um, and that's so, yes, I'm so glad you asked me this. Um, 
I, and just to clarify one thing about not being out, I didn't pretend to be straight. That would be very hard. <laughs> but, um, but, um, so, but with the vegan question, you know, one example of how generative it was to talk about it with people is so there was a time I spent a lot of time in Hyderabad uh, when I was doing field work for for indifference, and while I was in Hyderabad, I um, was doing some research on uh, these on, a, on uh, these beef festivals um, that were being held at Osmania University. Um, and these these beef festivals were a refusal of you know the of food fascism and purity politics, and um, in recent years uh, that festival had been attacked by ABVP gundas and that sort of thing. And so I was doing some research, um, talking to folks at Osmania University, mostly Dalits and OBC people who had been organizing um, these beef festivals to talk about the politics of of food um, uh, and so on. And and there was a there was a moment where, um, you know, we'd been chatting all day and hanging out all day and then everybody wanted wanted some food. And, um, you know, and most people were ordering, I think everybody was, you know, called in an order for beef biryani. And it was one of those moments where I had, you know, I could, I could make uh, what I understood, you know, all day, we'd been talking about, uh, you know, food fascism and purity politics. And it was one of those moments where I could have made a political decision to eat meat, right? Or I could have been as straightforward with them as they had been straightforward with me all day, right? And and I chose that option. Um, and I, you know, just asked if I could have a vegetarian biryani. And what was super interesting about that is then it led to this fascinating conversation. Um, I'm thinking particularly of these two men, Sudarshan and Kotesh, who talked about their lingering frustration with a certain kind of uh, left Brahmin politics of of eating beef, um, sort of sort of as a way to reject their own um, to reject their own caste background, right? And and Sudarshan and Kotesh referred to this as as consuming our struggle, consuming as a performance of struggle. Um, and so it was one of those moments where um, we're being straightforward about my veganism. It allowed for a kind of commensality. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot for years, which is that I think there's this understanding of commensality um, or of breaking bread, of literally eating and sharing the same food and how, imp- how vital that is um, to... But, but what I found instead was that there was a kind of, there was an authentic commensality, a breaking bread that would come from not eating the same food and the kinds of conversations and mutual understanding and, and debates, not in the strident sense of it, um, but the kind of conversations that come out of breaking bread, but not sharing the same food. And, um, you know, and of course, like the, the example at Osmania is one, but, you know, 
most Hindu vegetarians find veganism profoundly anathema. So with them too, it was always a very interesting and generative conversation. Um, when I said when I couldn't eat a rascula or whatever the case was, about the politics and ethics of of eating and not eating. Thank you, and I think. You know, I was, I was, you know, in my head, I was smirking because in your book, I think you have the strongest words for um, this section of people who then consume beef as if to make a political statement. And you write about it where you say that veganism is, is opposed in India for, you know, for very different reasons, one of them being that you know there is this conversation that you know because being vegetarian or being vegan is is about you know being close to hindutva in one way then consuming beef becomes a way of like you know like as a statement against fascism but also as a statement against caste and and all these things and i think i if i'm right you find people who make this conversation more odious than even the people who we see later on in the book who are actually like, you know, I, I suppose that person who is, you know, supplying uh, like eggs and chicken to Venkis and, and, and whatever. And I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I see you agree. So could you say more about about that just a little bit? Sure. And yeah, right. I think you're referring to, uh, to Nitin and, and, you know, all these people that I was encountering in the poultry industry who would always make a point of saying, but I have never, I have not touched an egg, right? I would not eat an egg. Um, and, um, and that kind of thing. And, and you're right, you know, I do, I do reserve, um, I think the way I describe the, the chapter in which I, I, I talk about the politics of sort of the, the, the secular, uh, left, secular humanist left, um, as an indulgently argumentative one. And it's a playful one. It's probably the most playful chapter in the book, I think. I think it's it's serious and playful, and those two things, I think, for me, very much go together. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm critical of the political decision to eat beef on its own. Um, I think where I am critical is where it where it is an expression of a certain kind of left Brahmanism that then as the the, the flip side to the ontological symbolic war of the right treats the animal as a political symbol, which I see as a kind of mutual being at war with the world. Um, that is is what I'm that is what I'm engaging in that chapter more so than simply a political decision to eat or not eat. Um, those are decisions that I entirely respect. Fair. Um, and I think to me, when I was reading, that was that part of your, of your argument was very much in alignment with your argument against consistency 
and for contradiction in that i think again please feel free to say that this is not correct but but i thought that you were also saying that this kind of left brahmanism never invokes its own contradictions um right and and that becomes a kind of problem mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right it's it, it's it's an example of what i was describing of normativity right mm-hmm. of of being able to live in contradiction without existential consequence that's right just normativity of a different kind yes um and if you will indulge me i have another question about your field work um which is that there's a moment where you write that you know you you talk about one particular day when um the 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 separation you had created between your field work and non field work kind of broke down right and you said that you fell asleep in your in your field work clothes um and i i wonder actually if creating that separation and i think this is this is in many ways like you know a generally an ethnographic question but also like related to your argument about indifference was that dif- like was that separation also a way for you to um i suppose in whatever way exit however briefly the i, I like one the sensorium of your field work but also the 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 commitment to indifference right like was it and and when i ask that maybe i'm not wording it right but when i ask that i'm also asking if indifference can be a sustained persistent or imminent way of existing or is it that in that moment when um like or or in all the moments when you created that separation is it is it that you were also saying that you wanted to flit in and out of that relation ah uh, what a wonderful question thank you shraddha um i think i i invoke that scene that moment in some ways as a gesture to a respectful and loving gesture towards a desire that i think many of us share to mark and practice those kinds of separation there was also in that scene commentary upon the futility of it right um it was it was a loving commentary on the futility of that effort and um and the the indifference there that emerged was like from a realization that however much i might try to to create these separations or to create these boundaries and again i think it comes back to that that generatively paradoxical relationship between non-relation and care and a non-relation and being deeply in the world um is that was yeah was a moment where those separations fell apart because it was just i was just in the world right there was an ontology of the world as opposed to that of the boundaries that i had tried so hard 
to protect in order both to protect myself, my time, um, my, yeah, my, yeah, to protect myself, right? That was made impossible when I was thrown in to the world. That's a really lovely way of putting it. And I think um, it's truly also a testament, I think, to your 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 sense of doing ethnographic work and, and to the kind of anthropologist you are that you write about this moment and you describe it in the ways that you do. Um, I I think we're we're nearing the end. So I have a question for you, which is where are you taking indifference next? Or what are the provocations you would like to leave your readers with? Um, or what are the things that you wish your readers would get most from the book? And what are some of the projects you're excited to work on in the future? Uh, um, okay, I'll, I'll end with two provocations, let's say, since you've given me the opportunity. Uh, one, um, I'm 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 curious uh, to um, to hear uh, how the sort of the, the the playful serious critique of curiosity as a central ethos of of anthropology multi species anthropology um, sort of how uh, how people take that up and respond to it and I, I'd be very interested um, you know maybe this is something that we can talk about later uh, the second provocation um, that I wanted to leave readers with is one of my you know one of my quote unquote favorite ones from the book and it comes in the chapter on sex uh, which I uh, wrote along with an India based collaborator named Alok Gupta and the question that frames that chapter is what does cow protection protect and though I probably shouldn't give away the answer to the question I will say that the provocation at the end of the question or the answer our answer is that cow protection protects the exclusive Hindu and anthropatriarchal right to bestial sex. So those are the two provocations uh, that I'll I'll leave with. Uh, in terms of my new project, it's um, it's a book, uh, a third book that I'm calling tentatively Murder, The Social Life of Violent Death. And yes, I already have uh, a book cover in mind from Dhruvi Acharya, <laughs> uh, which I know is jumping the gun but so murder the social life of violent death uh it's it's a it's a study of uh like a cultural study of murder in india about how murder and how we talk about it which is to say it's social life what it tells us about the role of violent intimate spectacle in revealing and establishing the shifting contours of the social and it engages with a number of murder events mostly in the 21st century but as a way to think about the genealogy of crime and murder and murder talk in India more generally and so some of the events include um, the uh, the institutional murder of Rohit Vemula in 2016 the assassination of the journalist Gauri Lankesh in 2017, um, the Amar Manit case, and so on. Um, you know, all of which allow me to think about uh, queer life and death, violent crimes against Dalit and women, extrajudicial killings, uh, the capacity of animals to murder, 
the impunity of political criminal underworlds. Um, so yeah, so the project is essentially an anthropology of how the social is constituted through the specters of violent death and ungrievable life. Thank you for sharing. Um, and of course, I think for me, this conversation has been endlessly fascinating. Um, and it's very, it's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Dave. Um, it's been such a pleasure talking to you too, Shreta. Thank you. For our listeners, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end the podcast. Um, Dr. Dave writes, by indifference, I mean living with others in their otherness such that human and non-human animals might flourish in imminent encounters. My attraction to imminence is to the idea that every moment might be its own ethical universe. At stake in this idea is an indifference to the principle of continuity, which conflates ethics with nothing more than a philosophic philosophy of representation. How is it then that we nurture a politics that is not sterile, that is not all cramped up with concerns about structures, boundaries, and the proper relationship amongst concepts? If you're looking for an answer, and if this podcast was interesting, Indifference is now available in bookstores and online. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.